0: Welcome to the Horror Babble Podcast. The Night They Crash The Party By Robert Block The whole thing came as a surprise. Nobody expected anything like it. But then, that's the way it was at Rudy's parties. You never could tell what might happen next. It started just the way those things always did. Rudy called me up and said, "'You'd better drop over, having a gang in, just for laughs.' "'For laughs? Count me in,' I told him. "'But remember, I'm on the wagon. Ever since that last brawl of yours when somebody socked that senator—' "'Forget it,' laughed Rudy. "'In our business, you gotta drink. And once in a while, you gotta sock a senator or two. A Navy contract is a Navy contract.' Which reminds me, put on a clean shirt when you come. We're having Admiral Cribber and a lot of brass. Also some models. Models? For them, I'll find a clean shirt. I promised. See you later. I found my clean shirt, and got started for Rudy's place along about nine. Nine o'clock of a summer Saturday night. I'm not likely to forget it. Walking down the street and watching the new cars go by— Station wagons, town and country models, convertibles from Chevy Chase. Cars threading between tall buildings, neon signs stabbing red fingernails at the sky—and people crowding, jostling, pushing, hustling along. No, I won't forget it. Most particularly, I remember the people. It seemed to me at the time that they looked different—changed, somehow, from the way they looked a year or so before. I kept thinking back to the time when Rudy and I had been broke. I wasn't on my way to any penthouse parties in those days, because Rudy didn't have a penthouse, and I didn't often have a clean shirt to wear, either. It hadn't been easy, breaking into this manufacturing agent's racket—we'd hocked everything just to keep going. Then along came the war scare, and Rudy and I nosed into these Navy purchasing deals. All at once we were signing orders, taking on new accounts, playing around with high-brass and big-shot scientists and people from show-business. Rudy did the fronting, I did the estimating, and we both made money. It was all right, of course. It was what we had been looking for. But sometimes I wondered what it all stacked up to in the end. Because, like I say, people seem to have changed. A year ago they would have been strolling along this street on a balmy summer night— There would have been a lot of couples holding hands—a lot of families out with the kids running circles around their legs. There'd have been girls in slacks, giggling along to the movies, and young fellows whistling after them. It was always that way on a warm Saturday night. But not any more. Tonight I could feel it as I moved along. I could feel the difference, see the difference. The change had come all right. Not only with Rudy and myself, but with everybody— Maybe it was all this war talk, and the stuff about secret weapons—maybe that's what got people down. That's what wiped the smiles off their faces, wound them up, and set them off to brush, shove, elbow, bump, and march along. Anyhow, they were rushing, and the cars were whizzing, and even the neon sign seemed to flicker faster. Everything jerked and speeded up, like an old silent movie film. Somehow it got to me bothered me. I was glad to get off the street—glad to turn into the big apartment hotel—glad to take the elevator up to Rudy's penthouse. Rudy met me at the door. The party was already going strong. I could see it, hear it, smell it. "'Here you are, at last,' Rudy said. "'Come in and meet the gang.' And he winked, and whispered, "Crib has been here for an hour, and he's loaded. I'm gonna brace him for that radar contract later.' He didn't have to tell me. I knew the routine by heart, and I could see for myself what he'd done to the Admiral. The big front room was filled with people, and the people were filled with liquor and conversation to the point where both frequently spilled over. Kreber was standing in front of the fireplace with a model named Kitty. He was a handsome, distinguished-looking old gent in a beautifully tailored uniform, and she was a gorgeous brunette. But somehow, together— They didn't make a very pretty picture tonight. Don't give me any of that high-brass stuff, the Admiral was saying. He poked Kitty right in the V of her dress. I'm just telling you the straight scoop. His finger left a red mark on her neck, and he tried to focus both eyes on it, as he swayed back on his heels. I'm just telling you they're ready to attack. Blah! That was Chester Garland, the news commentator, horning in. Can't you guys ever stop talking business— Every time I take a story off the wire, it's one of you monkeys making a statement. I go to the movies to relax with Danny Kay, and I get a newsreel with somebody in uniform making another statement. I come up here to relax, and you're on hand, sounding off. I'm telling you. Blah. You and the whole gang's been telling me for years now. But nothing ever happens. Nothing's gonna happen. So forget it. Here, have another drink.' Rudy came up and pulled Chester away. "'Lay off,' he said. "'Pass around these martinis like a little man, will you?' He handed Chester a tray. I went up to Kitty. "'What's the good word?' I said. "'Don't know any good words,' she pouted. "'One of those lousy Treasury Department snoops showed up today. Hit me with a bill for a G in back taxes. How he ever found out about those stocks, I don't know. And with this inflation and all.' She grabbed a drink, clung to it desperately. I wandered around this gay, pleasure-seeking, carefree crowd of very important persons, celebrities, and leading intellectuals, and drank in their words of wisdom. I tell you, we've consistently underestimated the possibilities of chain reaction. That was old Professor McKittridge. If the average citizen knew the potentialities of fissionable materials, we wouldn't be so smug. I disagree. Dr. Sanbrenner always disagreed, no matter how drunk he got— In fact, the drunker he was, the more disagreeable he became. It's biological warfare that will turn the trick. The next war will be won or lost within twenty-four hours. The proper use of chemical bombs planted over a widespread area, in a hundred leading cities, could wipe out twenty-five percent of our population in a day. And another twenty-five percent would probably die as a result of the universal panic. Now, if we can only get to them first and do the same thing— "'Damned government controls,' said another voice at my elbow. "'Ruining free enterprise? What's the man in the street need control for? Wait until next election's over. We're introducing some bills that will fix all that.' I felt the words bounce off my eardrums—all the gay, carefree words of wisdom so typical of the conversation of very important persons, celebrities, and leading intellectuals everywhere today. Oh, it was a— Lovely party, thank you. So, I tried not to hear what they were saying, and, gradually, I succeeded. The only trouble was, I could still see them, watch what they were doing. During the next half-hour or so, I saw Kitty slap Dr. Sandbrenner in the face, and break his glasses. I saw old Professor McKittredge shake his fist at Chester Garland. I saw Chester's wife get sick, and— I saw the lady who couldn't sleep pass out on the sofa near the fireplace. I saw Rudy steer Admiral Krebber into the back room. I saw everything, including my own puzzled, frightened face in the mirror. I wondered why my face was puzzled, frightened. I also wondered just what it was doing here at all. The room got hot and stuffy. Reek of smoke, reek of liquor, reek of breath and perspiration, and talcum powder, and perfume, and cologne, and depilatory, and running mascara. I passed another tray of drinks for Rudy, and then wandered over to the window, staring out at the sky. Somewhere off in the distance, over the Potomac, a storm was gathering. I tried to imagine what it was like up there, in the coolness of the clouds. There'd be wind and rain, and the eternal movement of the night. Yes— Night after night, everything was the same up there. And night after night, everything was the same down here. Down here. Where I was. Where. The taxes keep going up, year after year. Honestly, there's no place for children to play anymore, if you insist on having the little beasts. But what will it matter if only we can drop the bombs first? Yes. Night after night, that's the way it went down here. And— Let's all have another drink. It was Rudy—the life of the party—pumping alcohol into the veins of the corpse—trying to make it get up and dance. Tonight, it wasn't working so well. Too many quarrels, too many complaints, too many drinks. Rudy must have sensed that, and he was anxious to make the evening a success. He had to, if he wanted that Navy contract. I was still watching the storm clouds gather— when I heard Chester Garland talking to Kitty. "'What say we all go down there? We'd still be in time for the main event.' "'Go where? Nobody's going anywhere.' Rudy's voice, genial but with an undercurrent of dismay. "'Sure, let's get up a gang and go.' Chester again. "'Where? To the wrestling matches, that's where. I'm tired of all this fighting. Let's go watch somebody else fight for a change.' Kitty chimed in. "'Sure, why not?' "'Come on, everybody, let's see the wrestling.' There was a general babble and flurry. I could see the idea was catching on—Rudy saw it, too—because he stepped in front of the fireplace and raised his hands and voice. "'I have a better plan,' he shouted. "'We'll bring the wrestlers here.' "'Here? You mean, real live wrestlers in our very own front room? Hooray!' It was Chester's wife. She'd come, too, at the mention of strange men." "'Oh, those big hairy brutes! Shut up!' Rudy suggested, with a savoir-faire of a true host. "'I mean we can bring them here with television.' "'That's right,' Chester agreed. "'The bouts are being televised tonight.' "'But I didn't know you had a set, Rudy.' "'I haven't,' Rudy improvised. "'But we can get a TV set up here in twenty minutes. There's an ad in tonight's paper. They'll deliver and install a TV set. No aerial needed the minute you call the store.' Call him. That was Admiral Cribber. Your wish is my command, said Rudy. It shall be done. And it was done. We all settled back. Most everybody had a drink, and Rudy made his phone arrangements in the other room. In order to pass the time of waiting, Kitty took off her shoes and did a dance—although it wasn't the sort of dance where taking off her shoes made any difference. Professor McKittredge shook his fist at Admiral Cribber. The lady who had passed out on the sofa sat up and slapped Dr. Sandburner, breaking his extra pair of glasses. Rudy steered Chester Garland into the back room. Chester's wife, quite recovered, had two more martinis, and then got sick again. Oh, they managed to pass the time all right. I watched the freak storm. More clouds had gathered, and there were a number of isolated lightning flashes, still off in the distance. Once or twice— I could even hear thunder above the braying of the crowd, but there was no sign of rain in Washington proper—or improper, as the case might be. Nobody else paid any attention to what was going on outside. The men with the television set must have knocked about five minutes before Rudy went to the door. Finally, he let them in. The crowd let up a yelp of simulated delight, as the two came in, carrying a heavy sixteen-inch console model. "'Right in here,' Rudy said, indicating the dining room. "'It'll be easier to set up chairs. How about the corner?' He went in there with the men, and closed the door. The rest of the crowd got busy on a fresh tray of drinks. "'He'd better hurry.' Chester Garland glanced at his watch. "'It's almost eleven. We'll miss the main bout.' "'I just love wrestling,' said the woman who slapped faces. Last time George and I went, there was one of them, some— Indian, I think it was, named Chief Thundercloud, or something, and he had one of those brown torsos that was out of this world, I mean—well, anyway, he broke this man's arm, and you could just hear the bone go crunch. I thought I'd pass out, it was so exciting. Really, it was. Did you ever see the lions at work on a bunch of Christians? I murmured, but she didn't seem to hear me. Maybe it was just as well— By this time, everybody was herding towards the dining room. The two workmen seemed to have slipped away, and Rudy was stooping and fiddling with the controls as we came in. The light snapped out, and in the darkness, I could hear the thunder of the distant storm. Nice-looking set. What did they charge you? What make is it? Didn't they tell you how to work it? Having trouble getting the channel? Here, let me show you. Rudy ignored the queries. He stooped and fiddled. Grinned drunkenly, stooped and fiddled some more. Then, there came an incandescent glare from the screen, and a blast of sound from the speaker. Everybody scrambled for seats facing the screen. "'Here we go,' whispered Kitty. A face filled the screen. A voice filled the room. For some reason, we all seemed to hear the voice before we saw the face. It was a sing-song voice, droning but penetrating. Landing at eleven p.m. Earth time. Blah! Mr. Wrestling! That was Chester interrupting. Somebody said, Quiet there! And the voice came through again, over what is regarded as the western hemisphere of the planet. I guess that's what the voice said. I can't be sure, for most of the words were drowned out by shouts and conversation from Rudy's guests they were seeing the face for the first time. The face on the screen was like a metal mask. It showed up as grey, and might have been almost any colour which would reproduce that way on television. It was an oval, and contained the usual features, although the nose seemed flat. There was nothing too grotesque about it, except its absolute hairlessness. The head was round and bald, and the face itself lacked eyebrows, eyelashes, or hint of beard. The result was a grey, metallic, sexless countenance that might have been utterly unremarkable as a mask—except for the fact that the lips moved. And the lips of Rudy's guests moved now, shouting in incomprehension. Suddenly, something blocked the screen. It was Admiral Cribber, getting to his feet. "'Where's the phone?' he bellowed. "'We're being attacked!' "'Nonsense!' Rudy shouted. "'It's a program. Sit down. But they're attacking us. Wait a minute.' He waited. The face flickered out. Now the screen showed the sky. It was pinpointed, but not with stars. Moving patterns of light skyrocketed across the horizon. The voice sing-songed through. "'Landings will be made shortly. There is no organized opposition. Complete control will be established immediately upon landing.' "'Look!' Kitty was squealing and pointing at the screen. "'Flying saucers!' "'The sky gives it away,' Chester Garland told her. "'No clouds moving. It's a studio backdrop.' "'But what's it all about?' His wife wailed. "'Just one of those invasion shows. Remember Orson awesome Wells on the radio?' The screen showed a metropolitan skyline, pinpoints of light flickering like glowworms over the enormous concrete stalks of skyscrapers. Lightning crackled, and part of the skyline disappeared. Proceeding according to plan. Landings will be effected immediately. "'That's no play!' Kitty exclaimed. "'Listen! You can hear the explosions!' "'Thunder!' Rudy howled. "'Can't you see there's a storm coming up? Reception is bad!' Reception was bad. The screen flickered again, and we caught a glimpse of the metallic mask, then of another— Thunder boomed louder, and Admiral Kribber lurched to his feet once more. "'Gotta put through a call,' he said. "'I still think they're attacking.' He stumbled out of the room. There was another flurry of conversation, all jumbled together, and I caught only fragments. "'Norman Corwin. Documentary. Lot of science fiction. Another station. Need a drink.' Then the roaring from the television set drowned out all other sound— and the images came up. In one monstrous visual upheaval they spewed forth. The thunder rose. We saw a horde of metal faces moving down an enclosed ramp that led to a city street. We saw something flicker, and explode in midair. We saw a shot of what was obviously a tabletop miniature of the city of Washington, dominated by the monument. Lights played upon it momentarily, and it broke in half like a stick of candy— We saw— "'Turn it off!' snorted Chester Garland. "'We need a drink!' A half-dozen voices seconded his proposal. I added my own plea, I admit. The room was hot, steamy. Thunder and darkness enveloped us, and the incessant nightmare of the television poured forth. For a moment, I reflected upon its meaning. I couldn't exactly put my finger on the point, but my thoughts ran something like this. All over the country— Millions of people were sitting at their television sets, watching some paid technician stage a lurid melodrama about the destruction of a civilization—which had degenerated to the point where millions of people just sat at their television sets, watching some paid technician stage a lurid melodrama about the destruction of a civilization which had degenerated—and so on, over and over again. There was a hideous kind of truth buried somewhere in all this and I tried hard to think about it coherently. But it only took a moment. They were still yelling for another drink. The set was still blaring forth its explosions. A voice was still rasping. Landings have now been made successfully, at all designated points. And now Rudy was responding to the almost hysterical insistence of his guests. "'Turn the stinking thing off!' He rose, marched up to the set— stooped and fiddled. The crowd rose, and half-turned to re-enter the living room. Rudy was still stooping and fiddling, but the thunder increased in volume and tempo, and now the screen flickered forth in a scene of inferno. A city was disintegrating before our eyes. Beams played from the pinpoints in the sky. People fled between a labyrinth of buildings. People vanished. So did the buildings. The beams played on, and the metal-faced monsters marched on metal legs, unscathed by beams. Screams rose above the thunder. "'What's the idea?' hooted Chester Garland. "'Turn it off.' Rudy stood up. "'I—I—I I- I can't,' he said. "'Can't?' "'No. Look!' He raised one hand. It held a wire ending in a wall-plug. "'I can't, because it isn't turned on. It was never turned on in the first place.' Never turned on. Then, what's all this we saw? Is it some kind of gag? Abruptly, there was a crescendo of thunder, and the screen went dead. Somebody snickered. What are you trying to do, Rudy? Throw a scare into us? I swear the set wasn't connected. Blah! Chester Garland and his wife pushed towards the door to the living room. Kitty and the others crowded after them. Fooled me for a minute— said Dr. Sandbrenner. But— Rudy's reply was drowned by another burst of thunder. It came not from the set, but from outside. The walls began to vibrate. There is a storm, said Kitty. As everyone crowded up to the bar, she walked across the room to the window. I watched her, as Rudy took down a couple of fresh bottles. Well, soaks," he chuckled. What'll it be? Might as well get on with the party. I watched Kitty peer out of the window, saw her eyes widen, saw her hands grip the sill. The party's over, I murmured. But nobody heard me. For suddenly, above the thunder that resounded from the streets below, Kitty began to scream. She was still screaming, as we all rushed to the window and gazed down at what was happening in the world outside.